it's, been, it's a great privilege to be part of a Redeemer family. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Rob, and I am one of the life group leaders here at Redeemer. You may have seen me on hospitality or wearing a youth t-shirt as well, um, and it has been great to get to know people through those roles um, too. So now, uh, today is my first time doing a full-time preach, a uh, full-length preach at Redeemer, so I hope and pray that what I've got to say is useful and God-inspired. One of the last times I spoke to a number of people like this, um, I was invited to speak for an hour uh, to some students at university, and someone at the back did fall asleep. Just putting that out there. So uh, I'm not speaking for that long today, thankfully, um, but if no one falls asleep, I will be very happy. If I say anything this morning that you agree with, it would be great if you can say a nice big amen. Should we have a little practice? Great. Uh, that's encouraging for me, but it also lets me know that you're still awake. Um, so for those that haven't been here for a while, or if it's your first time, a special welcome from me. Um, we are in the middle of our series on work. Can you say work? work? Now, I wanted to start by talking a bit about my work. Have you ever met those people who have jobs and they tell you what they do, and you know exactly what it is and what it involves. Well, mine is not like that. I'm married to a teacher, so everyone knows exactly kind of what is involved in being a teacher. Um, now, if you ask me what I do, you could say I save the world. You could say I help to design and get renewable energy projects built. You could say I write reports and do data analysis. Or you could say I sit at a desk every day in an office or at home from nine to five. Well, all of these are true, especially the saving the world bit. <laughs> I know that we all work in different ways, and I think that is a good thing. Thank goodness, because if you ask my wife, Abby, working in an office would be an, her absolute nightmare. Uh, and I imagine others in the room would probably agree. When we talk about work, many will immediately think that I'm referring to paid vocational work. But in the context today, when I refer to work, I mean anything that we do that has an outcome or an output. That not only involves paid work, but involves volunteering, doing community work, studying at school or university, parenting, doing an internship or an apprenticeship, as well as running a business. In this series, we're following a lot of the guiding principles that Tim Keller outlines in his book, Every Good Endeavor. And if you haven't read it, I would thoroughly recommend it. In week one, Hugh talked about God's original design for work and that it was part of his plan. Last week, Roy looked at God's purpose for work and that we're invited to co-labor with him in building his kingdom. As a result of this, because of God's plan and purpose for work, Today, we're going to look at God's example for work and how he wants us to have a transformed attitude to work. I also just want to um, talk about this book, which has helped me in my preparations, called Thank God It's Monday uh, by Mark Green. I would say <clears throat> if anyone wants another book to help them, um, I'd thoroughly recommend this one as well. Before we get stuck in, I just want to pray. Thank you, Lord, that work has always been part of your plan. Thank you that you've given us skills and abilities to use. Lord, we want to have a mindset and an attitude towards work that pleases you. Help us to work as if we're working for you. 
May you speak to each one of us today about how we can have a transformed attitude to work and become more fruitful in your kingdom. Amen. There are so many unhealthy views of work. We've already had Mark Twain quote, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. Or Oscar Wilde, work is the refuge of people who have nothing better to do. As I was preparing for this, two songs kept coming to mind, which I think paint a picture of work. The first was from the film Snow White, which came out over 85 years ago. Can you believe it? If you've seen it or you're a Disney fan, then you'll know the song I'm referring to. It's the one where the seven dwarves all go off to work. Now, I need some audience participation for this bit, particularly if you can whistle. So the song goes something like this. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Very good. That went better than I imagined, actually. Um, but have you ever actually listened to the lyrics? The dwarves sing, it ain't no trick to get rich quick. We dig up diamonds by the score, a thousand rubies, sometimes more. But we don't know what we dig them for. Now, apart from being the first Disney film ever made, we can see from these lyrics some insights into what the view of work was, even in the 1930s. Do we know why we work? What is our attitude to work? The other song that kept coming to mind was Nine to Five by Dolly Parton. But don't worry, I'm not going to sing that one. I think some of the lyrics really do sum up how many of us feel about work. Lyrics like, Oh, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taking and no giving. Or what about this one? They just use your mind. You never get the credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. And finally, they let you dream just to watch them shatter. You're just a step on the boss man's ladder. I wonder if any of us have felt like this at work. I mean, if this is the picture of work that we're told then no wonder many people get that sinking feeling on a Sunday night before going back to work on Monday. We work all through the week to get to Friday when we can pour ourselves a nice glass of wine or beer or drink of choice, and we just sigh a big sigh of relief and think, thank goodness we made it. Now, some of you may have just come off a 12-hour night shift, and you probably would give anything to work a 9-to-5 job, so I commend you for that. But I wonder how many teachers in here are thinking, oh man, it's the end of our term, I've got to go back to work, but it's only six weeks until Easter, hooray! And I wonder how many are counting down the days until they can retire. I think the example that sticks out for me the most when it comes to a bad attitude for work is the show The Apprentice. Who's watched or seen The Apprentice? Now, I can admit I have watched it. Uh, it's quite entertaining. Um, I know it's a TV show, and it's over-dramatized, but I think a lot of how the candidates act is a reflection of how unhealthy attitudes to work can be. Listen to some of these quotes. I am disgustingly competitive. I will go to any lengths to win this investment. I'm calm and collected, but if they come at me, I will bite, and I will sting, and I will get that investment from Lord Sugar. I'm going to throw people under the bus. I'm going to throw people over the bus. I'm going to get on the bus, take the wheel, 
can get that investment. All about this one. I want the cars, I want the girls, but most of all, I want the power. Now, I know it's there for entertainment, and we can laugh at this, but the reality is, we might not say or behave like this, but the same sorts of things can lurk in our hearts and even be a drive for us to work. We can fall into the same more subtle desires when it comes to work. Have you ever wrestled with the reason we work? What's your attitude to work? Take a moment to think. Maybe you're working to get paid to pay the bills. Maybe you're working to achieve something. Maybe a qualification or skill. Maybe you're working to gain a specific status or power or influence. These are important questions because our attitude to work can expose idols in our hearts. Now, when I say idols, you may immediately think of a gold statue on a shrine that people are worshipping. But the Bible refers to idols as anything that we serve that isn't God and his purposes. We can easily set up idols in our hearts and bow down to them, sometimes without even knowing. When we do this, we put our trust in man-made things to, as Tim Keller puts it in the book, deliver the control, security, significance, satisfaction, and beauty that only God can give. We can be driven to work by many things. I've put a list of a few significant idols relating to work up on the screen. I wonder if you relate to any of these. The idol of success, the worship of winners, placing achievement and accomplishment above all other things. The idol of money, a pursuit of material things and all that we long for and can buy with, with money. The idol of position, maybe where we place our identity. The idol of reputation, maybe you're drawn towards fame and influence. And the idol of power. Sometimes our work is a way to control others and things in our life. And I've missed the idol of work actually as itself. So many people, that is an idol. These are things that humans crave. Work can be full of temptation to pursue these things and we can easily become polluted by an approach to work which is often self-seeking and self-satisfying. Now, don't get me wrong, these are not bad things in and of themselves. Many people will be successful in their jobs. Many will earn lots of money. And many will be promoted and be leaders in their workplace. The issue comes when these are our drives, and these are the reasons that we get up for work each day. Romans 12 talks about renewing our mind in verse 2, which says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What I want to speak to you today about is three principles that we can take from Scripture to combat these idols and have a godly, transformed attitude to work. My hope is that this will be both challenging and freeing, so we can all wake up tomorrow and have God's view of the work that we're doing. I hope this will equip us to better serve the people in our workplaces and those around us, and remember why God has put us in those situations. 
Work is a fantastic thing, as we've learned over the last few weeks. It's part of God's plan. But how many of us feel unfruitful in our work? It's very easy, I don't know about you, to compartmentalize our lives and keep work separate from serving at church and serving on other ministries. But work is one of the ways we serve God. And interestingly, Hebrew uses the same word for worship as for the word work. The word is avodah. Can you say avodah? The English word service perhaps comes closest to capturing both meanings. Work, then, is worship. It is done for God. We spend, on average, 85,000 hours in our life, or the equivalent of 36 years, working with people who don't know Jesus each day, sometimes for many years, with huge opportunities to influence them for the gospel. But how easy is it to forget our workplace ministry? It's something I feel God is challenging me on personally, in that I'm supposed to be an example and an advocate for him in my workplace. I feel like God wants to say to us, remember your workplace ministry. For those who struggle to speak to people on the streets, for those who might not know their neighbors very well, we have people that we come into contact with every day who need to hear the gospel and know Jesus' love. Amen? Now, I know that there are people here who are not enjoying their work, who face daily challenges, and their work is unbearable. And we want to get behind you and pray for you as you serve God through these tough times. We are called to live, as it says in Philippians 1, verse 27, a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Similarly, in Colossians, Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit. Turn to someone next to you and say, bearing fruit. In every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. But what does that look like? When it comes to our lives and our work, what pleases God? And how should we conduct ourselves? In order to do this, we're going to look at what Micah identifies as three things that God requires of his people, which should help combat the potential idols of work. So, if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to Micah chapter 6. It is towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, it's not a very big book, so hopefully you can find it. The verse will be up on the screen at the same time. Um, so, Micah identifies three things that God requires of his people to combat potential idols of work. In chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And what does the Lord require of you? I know many times I've asked this, and I'm sure others have too. Maybe some here today are wondering, God, what do you want me to do? And it can be a bit nervous waiting to hear the answer. Um, I'm not sure what God is going to say. It was great last week to be reminded by, by Roy about our individual commission to work for God in whatever we are doing. But when we look at the verse, Micah puts it very simply. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I say it's simple, 
but this can be challenging, especially in our workplaces. Let's look at these in a bit more detail within the context of work. So, to act justly or do justly. Work can be full of temptation to act unjustly. This can be challenged in any situation where there's a pressure to massage the data or not follow procedures properly or to turn a blind eye to bad practice or try and take shortcuts. Acting justly is about conducting yourself in an upright manner in both motivation and action. It's about making right judgments and decisions that are full of integrity. Even in my own life recently, I took a day of unpaid leave just before Christmas, and when I got my paycheck in January, it was exactly the same as it was the previous months. And part of me could have thought, well, it's just one day. Maybe nobody will notice, and I can just keep the extra money. But... I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit to raise it with my HR team and to act justly and be honest and check the motivation of my heart. They've now said it will come out of my next paycheck, which is good. But because, hallelujah, thank you. Because we, when we say we're to be full of integrity, it's about how do we work when no one's looking? How do you act at work when no one is around? In these days of working from home a lot, for many of us, this can be particularly challenging. Who, when I was doing my research, I came across a phrase called quiet quitting. Has anyone heard of this before? So this, this is a, a new trend, apparently, that's been for the last few years, where it's, you're doing the minimum requirement of one's job and putting in no more time or effort or enthusiasm than absolutely necessary. And it's referred to as quiet quitting. Now, I hope that doesn't refer to anyone here, but uh, maybe, maybe you felt like that. I, I really don't like my job. I'm just going to do the bare minimum. So when we think about it, we need to remember that our actions matter, of course, but the gospel shows us how important it is to look at our heart. We need to look at the root of our actions. Often, the temptation to act unjustly comes with a promise of success if I just do it like this, we'll be more productive and we'll get better results. By doing this, we don't trust in God's provision and promise. Just like Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah in the Old Testament who tried to fulfill God's promise of children through misguided human effort, we can try to shortcut, shortcut God's promise and find solution to struggles. But God calls us to be faithful and we can be faithful because he is faithful. And he lived a perfect life, an example of how we can be. Psalm 106 says, Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. We are called to be those that uphold justice. To not accept it when people say, that's just the way we do things around here. Or everyone does it like that. We're not to measure our standard against those of the world. We are to be set apart, even if that means we are opposed. In John 17, Jesus talks about us being in the world, but not of the world. We are to work knowing that we are his representative. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Turn to someone nearby and say, you are an ambassador for Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We should be those who bring the influence of the kingdom into workplaces and not those who allow the influence of the world into the kingdom. One great example of someone acting justly in the Bible is Mordecai in the book of Esther. And if you haven't read it, I would thoroughly recommend it. Mordecai was instrumental in ensuring the safety of not only Esther and the Jewish people, but he also exposed treachery in the kingdom of her husband, King Xerxes. One attribute that is undeniable with Mordecai is that he is never one to buckle under pressure, and this was never more obvious than with his encounter with Haman, the king's promoted second in command. His promotion meant that many in the kingdom were forced to bow down to him, but Mordecai didn't follow this order, even though there was a strong possibility of death by Haman. Mordecai didn't back down from standing up for his beliefs, especially his belief that Haman was not worthy to be bowed down to. One of the most celebrated verses in the Bible comes from the lips of Mordecai when he was speaking to Esther about why she should be the one to tell King Xerxes of Haman's plot. He doesn't lessen the truth that when the king discovers Esther's Jewish heritage, she will have the same fate as the rest in the community. However, he instilled in her hope that maybe this position, this difficult position she was in, was ordained by God for her to have. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Some of you here will be wondering why you're in your jobs. But I can tell you that God has a purpose and a plan for it. Mordecai had the wisdom, compassion for others, courage to stand up for his beliefs, and hope in God's calling and provision. So how do we have a transformed attitude to work? Number one, by acting justly in all situations. Point two, we are called to love mercy. Or to put it another way, we are called to loving kindness. In essence, this means treating people well, caring for people and treating them with respect, no matter what position they hold. Loving kindness is about not showing partiality. James warns the church about not showing partiality and honor to those who we perceive as higher than others. If we do that, we fail to love our neighbor well. But we need to ensure that we don't do the same at work. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a work setting and some colleagues are treating uh, some more senior people differently to the more junior people? Maybe it's agreeing with all their points in meetings or not listening to their original points, or maybe it's the way they talk to them, like they are more important. This is not the example of Jesus. If you think about it in earthly terms, Jesus' strategy for establishing himself as the Messiah was not the logical way you would, have, would do it, or even the way that the religious leaders at the time would have thought. 
You would think he would go to the religious leaders, he'd whine and dine with them and smooth them to get them on board, and that that would bump up his status, and then people might follow. Maybe the equivalent for us would be like taking out lots of clients for fancy meals or accepting bribes or gifts from them. But Jesus did the exact opposite. He went to the lowly and the despised, and he shunned the important people. He didn't lord it over anyone, but he washed the feet of his disciples. He came to serve and be served. He came to serve some of the lowest in society. What would that look like in your work scenario? Maybe it's spending time with a new person in your team, or someone who's struggling, or maybe a neighbor who has no friend. Do we consider others to the best of our ability in work? Do we think, oh, oh, someone else will clear up after me. The cleaner will get that. It's fine. The other way we can ensure we're loving kindness is to check our hearts that we're not putting a love of money above our love of God. Now, I know we don't like to talk about money, but Jesus did, and the Bible is clear that money can be an idol. Matthew 6, verse 25 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I can admit that money has been a motivator in my life in the past, and I've had to check my heart and recommit it to him. Now, money is not bad. It is a tool, and we just have to use it correctly. You know, the best way I've found to combat money as an idol is to give it away. It's when we give that we see that our hearts are where our hearts are. We're no longer trusting in money to satisfy us. When we think of Jesus, what was his motivation? As John 13, 3 says, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. The essence of being free from jostling for position and therefore being free to love people without partiality is knowing that you belong to the Father and he has given all you need. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, All of us were dead in our transgressions and have lived to gratify the cravings of our flesh. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that we have been saved. Thank you, Lord. It's the example of Jesus that he came to save us by reaching out to the broken and the rejected, you and me, and he paid the ultimate price. So, how do we have a transformed attitude to work? Number two, by loving mercy in all situations. And finally, walking humbly with your God. We live in a world where being recognized as the best is something quite important. Who's watched shows like The Great British Bake Off? Or The Voice? Or MasterChef? Now, these are great shows, but they can communicate that you're not really anything unless you're the best. The voice can be seen to be the best singer, 
Bake Off, Lindsay be the best baker, MasterChef, the best cook. And that attitude can creep into our work. It's good to have a good reputation at work, but that is not our ultimate goal. The purpose of your work is not to make a name for yourself, but to serve others. Tim Keller puts it like this in the book. Without the gospel of Jesus, we will have to toil, not for the joy of serving others, nor the satisfaction of a job well done, but to make a name for ourselves. Let me say that again. Without the gospel of Jesus, we will have to toil not for the joy of serving others, nor the satisfaction of a job well done, but to make a name for ourselves. We may strive to make a name for ourselves, never being satisfied and always wanting more. But with the gospel, we surrender all of it to God. If you don't know the gospel or the God that we serve here at Redeemer, then today you can know the living God. Speak to me or any of the people serving or maybe someone you came with after the service. We would love to pray with you. Trying to make a name for yourself through your work will fuel competition and comparison. And having this focus ruins relationships and damages mission and our ability to walk humbly. How do we walk humbly when we're trying to get a promotion? It's one I've thought about quite a lot. Are we honest about our skills and our abilities in interviews? Do we recognize God's plan and purpose in where we are right now? We can be free from the pressure of making a name for ourselves because our worth and our value is found in our position in Christ. The book puts it like this. When you see how much you are loved, your work will become far less selfish. Suddenly, all other things in your work life become just things. You can risk them, spend them, and even lose them. You are free. I hope this message has been freeing in your work. James 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Here we have a promise that God will be the one to lift us up. It's not our work or our money or our status or our position or our earthly success or our perceived power that will help us. But it's when we walk humbly with God, he says, I will lift you up. To conclude, Jesus is our ultimate example of how we should conduct ourselves at work and our ultimate assurance for being able to live this way. He acted in justice by being without sin. He demonstrated loving kindness by reaching out to the broken and the rejected. And he walked humbly with God, even to the point of death. He laid aside his rights to go to the cross and rescue us. I want to close with this, and maybe the band can start to come back up. Paul writes this to the Colossians to encourage them while he's in prison. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive it as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. And this bit's important. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So I wonder if you'd stand with me. If you've been giving yourself to any of the idols I've mentioned today, then today is a day to repent, to turn away, and ask God to renew your mind and your attitude to work. Come and receive prayer. There will be people available to pray with you during this next song and after the service. Let's recommit our hearts to following God and worshipping him alone through our work. And let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help each one of us to walk in a manner worthy of God, fully pleasing to him. I commend you, as we leave and think about the week ahead, to remember to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. God wants to use you in your work. So, let's have a transformed attitude and be God's ambassadors in our workplaces. Amen.